Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. And I'm talking today with Marnie Howlett. Marnie is a lecturer in politics at the University of Oxford. Marnie focuses in her work on nationalism and geopolitics within the former Soviet space and in particular in Ukraine. Marnie also conducts survey research in Ukraine. And on the podcast today, we're going to discuss the latest public opinion survey from Marnie and her team. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Marnie. Thank you for having me, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, as I mentioned, you've been involved in organising large-scale public opinion surveys in Ukraine. So can you briefly outline the work that you've been doing in Ukraine and also the parameters of your most recent survey, which I believe the results of that have just been released? Yeah, thank you for the question. I've been working in Ukraine for the last eight years. So I'm a qualitative scholar since 2014 and Past the Euromaidan period, I was doing extensive ethnographic research in Ukraine in different areas along the border. I finished up most of that research in the last year. And once uh, the war happened, as it was clear, I wouldn't be able to continue uh, qualitative research or field work for some time. Um, I've shifted gears a little bit, like many academics have been forced to do, and started to do some public opinion survey research. So I've teamed up with a few colleagues at Oxford in different capacities, as well as a think tank and NGO, uh, the Democratic Initiatives Foundation. They're based in Kiev, Ukraine. And together, we've now run two different surveys, uh, the first being a public opinion survey, which we conducted in May. This survey in particular was a follow-up from surveys that the company had run previously. So they had run public opinion surveys in February and December 2021, and then February 2022, right before the invasion. We then used those questions and created a new survey and ran that in May 2022. So our hope here was to see how public opinion in Ukraine had changed in the lead up to the war and then just following the invasion. So I believe our survey had been conducted about 90 days after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since then, we've recently run a conjoint experiment survey. And in this, we really wanted to tease out some of the answers that we had found in the public opinion survey by understanding what individuals were thinking about their territory, about sovereignty. This comes from the fact that uh, in the last seven months, we've seen many leaders around the world calling on Ukraine to give up territory, to give up sovereignty in many regards uh, in order to achieve peace with Russia. And so we really want to tease out what Ukrainians feel and what their perspectives are, as this has been overlooked uh, quite extensively in these larger discourses in the news, as well as within academic discussions, honestly. So we believe that this was important to elevate those voices, as any piece will fundamentally rely on Ukrainians' opinions, uh, as that was kind of the impetus or the motivation behind uh, our latest research. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And conducting public opinion surveys during the time that there was full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. How did you manage to do that logistically and also, I guess, methodologically under such conditions? Yeah, this is a challenge that uh, none of my team nor many scholars around the world have really been faced with previously. Uh, This is because even scholars who do work within war zones or conflict zones often aren't 
doing them with inactive conflicts. Often survey-based research or ethnographic research occurs immediately following the conflict due to reasons of safety, security, ethics, approvals, uh, et cetera. But with this, because the conflict is ongoing and it's very timely, but we see the need for this research, there were barriers and hurdles that we had to overcome that we could see some of them, but we couldn't see all of these. So many unforeseen challenges. Some of these in particular had to do with sampling and just basically anyone running a survey would know that there are challenges in any type of sampling to ensure a representative sample. So with our surveys, we decided not to include internally displaced peoples uh, or any migrants or immigrants especially those who had left Ukraine and then returned. We wanted to only survey the people who had stayed in Ukraine through the entire period. What drove that decision to only include Ukrainians who actually stayed in Ukraine the whole time, so not internally displaced people and not people who'd left and come back? There are a few different factors. First was that in the first survey that we ran, we wanted to be able to compare the results across time. And because the individuals who had been surveyed in February and December 2021 and then February 2022 had been individuals living in their homes permanently, we decided that it was would be most comparable if we were able to also survey individuals who had stayed In addition to that, um, we know that in Western Ukraine, there are a large number of internally displaced people. And with that, it would be quite challenging to determine where everyone was based. Uh, And then also we figured it would be necessary to also unpack why they left the region, whether it be for safety and security or even just economic opportunities, et cetera, which then added an additional layer or even just further questions to our survey. Uh, We decided it was best to really focus on those individuals who had stayed. So once we had determined that and trying to determine pre-war statistics and to ensure a representative sample, we had to send enumerators uh, out into the field which we believed was important to put money into Ukraine and to ensure that these people did have work. But with this also came an ethical consideration and ensuring that our new writers were aware that regardless of if they did not complete the work uh, or there's reasons such as the need to go into a bomb shelter that would prevent them from working a certain day, they would still be paid for that work. And we did not want them to put themselves into any risk at all for the sake of research. In one instance, in our latest uh, survey, there was some aggression towards our enumerators, and this was in the region of Sumy, which borders Russia uh, up in the north of Ukraine. There were several different instances of aggression against some of our enumerators, and so at that point, uh, we decided to drop all of the interviews and the sample completely from that region and reallocate uh, those to different regions, as we did not feel at all that it was safe nor secure for any enumerators to put themselves into that situation. Um, So with this, I I suppose the methodology was quite complex, but it was also fluid and it was something we really had to be open to as we were working through this. And as any most scholars who are working in the field right now will realize is the timelines are very flexible. We have to be open to changes. It's very unpredictable. Even choosing the regions that we are focusing in uh, was very dynamic, as by the time we had submitted our ethics approvals, uh, the situation had already changed, and additional regions could be added because they had been liberated by Ukrainian forces. Mm-hmm. So what were the key findings from your survey? Well, in our first survey, um, some of the really interesting findings, um, because we could compare them or the surveys across time, some of them were around the responsibility of the war. So who's responsible? And so we saw a significant percentage of people 
from the first surveys to the one that we ran in May suggests that the leadership of Russia and then the citizens of Russia be responsible uh, for the war. Whereas previously, individuals had pointed at some other factors, such as the possibility of Ukraine's NATO membership, um, increasing tensions. Um, individuals were more definitive. I think, in fact, we found in May 2022, 96% of our respondents had said that the leadership of Russia uh, was responsible for the war. And this was coming from 61% uh, previously in the survey in February 2022. So this showed us you know, significant more emphasis on this being part of Russian's foreign policy, or at least the president's foreign policy. Related to this, um, individuals really emphasize that the war is a consequence of Russia's foreign policy and very minimally a consequence of Ukraine's aspiration to join NATO. Uh, this was very counter to what at the time, at least May 2022, was what we were hearing within academic discourses, especially by some prominent scholars as well as uh, within larger media uh, conversations about who is responsible, whether or not Ukraine should step down um, for their aspiration to join the EU or NATO. And so with this survey, we could really show that Ukrainians don't feel that it is. In fact, they really do strongly believe that it is Russia. Similarly, and kind of pushing this forward was our second survey uh, in which we found 79% of respondents were against um, having a Russian-backed government. And of the options that we gave individuals, which would be increases in civilian deaths, military casualties, increased nuclear threat, individuals still said they were willing to give up anything to not have a Russian-controlled government. That figure of 79% would not want a Russian-backed government in Kyiv actually seems low to me from just my anecdotal experience of speaking to Ukrainians at the moment. It seems much higher than 79%. But am I understanding you correctly that that other sort of 20% weren't saying we're in favour of a Russian-backed government, but they were saying if there are this and this and this condition, we might accept a Russian-backed government? Yeah, and I guess we'd have to explain a little bit what we did in the this experiment in particular. So we had given individuals strategies, presented them with two strategies to choose from. And with these strategies, there were five different attributes that were randomly arranged. The number of civilian casualties, a number of military casualties had arranged, the risk of a nuclear threat had arranged, the outcome had arranged these attributes are randomly produced and individuals had to choose of these two strategies which one they preferred and we presented them with four of these pairs in particular giving up land any land at all and a Russian-backed government where what individuals were constantly or routinely um, against so with this remaining 21 percent of the population it's not that they are not against uh, the Russian-backed government but instead for them it might actually be that giving up territory is more important for them. So they are more willing to defend the borders of Ukraine. The second thing that they are against would be the Russian-backed government. So there is a little bit of fluctuation there, but the majority, it's the sovereignty, it's the, the control of the government is what they found is most important. And then the second most important being giving up any territory at all. When we ran the numbers and, you know, created hypothetical situations to figure out what exactly, you know, Ukrainians would potentially agree to in order to support a Russian-backed government. We found that it would equate to approximately 12 million civilian casualties. 
44 million military casualties and almost the certainty that there would be a nuclear threat. And in fact, many individuals even suggested that they would fight for Crimea and that Crimea was something that they saw as Ukraine and that it wasn't just about returning the borders to 2014. It was the borders in Donbass as well as Crimea. So with us, this shows us that Ukrainians are categorically opposed, which essentially means that they are not willing to give up anything, that they will fight, they will die to the point that more people than is their own population could die and they still would not be willing to back down and they will still not support a Russian controlled government in Kiev. Uh, So this really shows us that at any cost, they will defend their land, which is then important for us to think about how we support Ukraine going forward. That makes sense. And that certainly aligns with Ukrainians that I've spoken to and their sentiment, which seems to be exactly along those lines, like saying, look, even if, you know, we all hope it won't happen, but even if Putin were to use a tactical nuclear weapon, that wouldn't stop us, you know, it wouldn't stop us fighting. So what do you draw as implications from that in terms of how the war might go forward? Well, I mean, this speaks a little bit more to my qualitative work and the work that I've been doing prior to the war and even prior to the pandemic is that I think up until this point in time, there's been an unrecognized or at least a minimized emphasis on Ukraine and Ukraine's strategic position within the world. I think from the West, we often saw Ukraine as an extension of Europe, or perhaps we could say the buffer zone, as it's often been called, between Russia. Um, And conversely, we saw Russia seeing Ukraine as a borderland or as an an extension of it. So with this, we saw these very um, opposing views, ideologies playing out within Ukraine, um, or at least from a top-down approach, using Ukraine as a battle space, so to say, to carry out or to fight against these very, very opposing worldviews. I think going forward, something that we need to think about is that Ukraine is not that. I could see this qualitatively by asking individuals in my research how they see their land, where their strongest attachments are to. For Ukrainians, it is not the state as we see cont- the contemporary state per se. It is the land and that land to them is what is important because they have had war on that land. They have defended that routinely. Um, and as we see again in this last survey I just spoke about, we see this too. They will defend that territory, that land. And that is something I think we need to recognize when we look at Ukraine. And so if we want to support Ukraine, we need to know that Ukrainians are going to continue to fight, regardless of how many more Russian soldiers are deployed at this rate. Uh, I guess the question is, you know, what will Russia look like after this? What will the relationships between Ukraine and Russia be like? Many individuals have family or did have family in both countries. Um, But I think, you know, this shows us that Ukraine will probably come out of the war stronger than ever before. And I think there will be a new legitimacy of the country delayed. It definitely was deserved a long time ago. But I think now coming out, we can we see it being a stronger state, Um, at least socially, I think, than Russia. There's a renewed recognition and acknowledgement of Ukraine as a perhaps a growing state uh, on the global scene. Mm -hmm. Certainly it's a high price to pay with massive human costs, but I agree with you. We will see a Ukraine come out of this that's stronger than before. Thanks, Marnie. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today and sharing your research. It's been really interesting. I'm really glad. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening and thanks to Mr Smith for our theme music.